you would stand as we read God's word, Exodus 18. Exodus 18. It says this, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he had said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet her, his father-in-law, and his father-in-law, and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known the statutes of God's and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what, are you, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. God will be able, you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Let's pray. God, we need your help. We need the Spirit, your Spirit, O oh God, indwelling within us to open up our eyes to see the beauties contained in your Word. 
God, how can a man keep his way pure? By hiding your words in our heart, God. May we do that even right now. We thank you for this word that is so good. We need it. We need to hear your word, God. As Scripture says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. We need the word that you have spoken and given to us, God, now, today, for every situation in, that we're going through, God, every scenario, we need your word to speak into us. God, be with us now. Let us hear from you, from your word. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. As you can see, the title of this sermon is The In-Laws Are in Town. And, uh, you know, maybe you have a, maybe you've just kind of, you know, Maybe you've tensed up even hearing that in-laws are coming to town and you're like, oh no, hide the nice things, you know, oh man, get ready for the week, oh, they're going to be in for a week, right? Oh no. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you have a great relationship with, with your in-laws and, uh, and, and that is a great thing to have. In-laws are a great benefit and can be, bring uh, great, great blessing to your life. As we see here in Exodus 18 that Moses' father-in-law does come to town and actually is a great blessing to, to Moses in this situation. And so in Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law comes to town, and we learn here that even, even in what goes on with, in, in Jethro's life is that God is showing himself that he still desires to save nations, even nations outside of Israel. And he's still concerned about the order and structure of his nation, that being Israel, his people. So that's what we're going to look at today, is that God is saving nations like Jethro the Midianite, and he's also establishing his nation, Israel, for the giving of the law, which we'll get into in the next couple of weeks. And so let's look at these things. We're just going to look at two points here today in Exodus 18. In the first 12 verses, we're going to look at this, Jethro's confession, Jethro's confession, that we're going to get a guy kind of pop up here out of kind of nowhere. We've been if you remember, God saved Israel out of, out of Egypt, and they go into the wilderness, and it's been grumbling and complaining the entire time, right? Grumbling and complaining. We don't have this. We don't have that. We don't trust you, God. We're discontent. We want more, things like that. And now we get Jethro pop up right here, right after a battle. And so it's kind of odd. You ever had that situation where somebody comes into a room, maybe it's a gathering, and you're like, what are they doing here? Like, they come to the wrong place? Like, kind of odd seeing them here. Maybe you are that person. <laughs> More often the case, Wes McKay has walked into a room that he's not supposed to be in. And they're like, what, what is he doing here? You ever had that feeling? That's kind of what, what you feel like when you read through Exodus and you get to Exodus 18. And you're like, Jethro? What is, what is he doing here? Like, why, why are we talking about Jethro, right? Why, why, what importance does he have in the story here? But as we'll see, that Jethro's appearance here is going to set the stage for Exodus 19 and 20. And it's going to teach us that God judges nations just like he did in Exodus 17 on the Amalekites. But he's also going to save nations like a priest from Midian. And if you remember, we haven't seen Jethro since Exodus chapter 4. So a lot has happened since Exodus chapter 4. Remember that? That basically uh, Moses saves uh, Zipporah and the daughters of Jethro, and and they go back and they tell him, tell Jethro, like, hey, a guy saved us down at the well, 
And they're like, bring that man home and marry him, one of you girls. Come on, right? He saved you. And so that's what happens is that he marries Zipporah and they have children. And, and it seems like what's happened is that when, when Moses went back to Egypt to bring a message to Pharaoh is that he left Zipporah and the kids back with Jethro when he went back. And so now Jethro is meeting him after all that the Lord has done. And Jethro is bringing Zipporah and the kids back now. He's returning to them. And so that's what we find out is that Jethro is the priest of Midian and that he's heard what's happened to Israel and to Moses. And so now he's coming and bringing Moses' wife and the kids. And we learn that they've had two sons, right? And we learn about their names. And I think there's an importance here is that we're told their names. I don't, we could have just been told they had two sons, but we're told they had two sons and that they were given two names and that there are reminders of something is that one of the sons is named Gershom, which is, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So you can remember this is that Moses named one of his kids Gershom because it's a reminder of his past where he's been, that he's been in a foreign land. He's not been a resident there. He's not been in a home in a sense. It's a reminder what God has brought him out of. And then he names the other kid Eleazar, which is a reminder of what God did, right? It's the Hebrew word, which means that God is his help. So both of his sons are named significant things because one is a reminder of where he came from and what he was before God saved him. And the other one is a reminder of what God did to save him. He helped them. Right? So seeing his kids are constant reminders for him of what God has done for Moses. In ancient times, that's how people remembered things. They built altars to remember what God had done for them. And sometimes they named their kids certain things to remind them what, what God had done. Names have significance in the Bible. I don't know if you know the significance of your name. It may not have any significance to you. Wesley means farm boy. So that doesn't have great significance to my life. Clearly, I don't look like a farm boy. But in ancient times, they named their kids because they wanted to remember certain things about what God had done for them and who God is. And maybe that's for you right now. Maybe you look at past pictures of who you were before Christ, before knowing God, and you say, that's what God saved me out of. Look at this. That can be a testimony to even your kids and your friends. This was before I knew Christ. You see this picture? That's before God saved me. And now look at me now. Look what God did. He saved me from the pit of hell. These pictures can be even a reminder for what God did for us. But for Moses, his kids' names are a reminder of what God had did for him and Israel. And so it goes on, and Jethro gets there, and they meet one another, and they, 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 they check on one another's welfare and how they've been doing. And then in verse 8, look at this. Put your eyes on verse 8. Is that They get settled down, and what does Moses do? Then Moses told his father, father-in-law, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh, how the Lord had delivered them, what the Lord had done, right? Is that the first thing that spills out of Moses' mouth when they reunite is this, look what God did. Look what God's done. Do you hear? Do you see these things? I know you've gotten word probably so far, but let me tell you everything that God did to save Israel out of Egypt, his miraculous signs and his wonders and his miracles and his great right arm and his powerful salvation of what he brought to us. This is what God did. So reuniting with Jethro is that it's just spilling out of his mouth 
what God did. All the Lord had done. Just listen to this. All the Lord had done. How the Lord had delivered them. All the good the Lord had done for Israel. The Lord God who delivered us. The Lord who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. In all these phrases of what Moses communicates to Jethro. Is that he's putting soul responsibility for Israel's salvation on God. Right? Who's getting the credit in all these words? Is it Israel? It's God. That's right, Caleb. That's right. It's God. There's no, well, we, we manufactured this, or we, we got this together, or we banded a, a bunch of brothers together, and we fought against Egypt. No. It's clearly over and over and over again. God did this. 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 And let me just say this for us as we think about when we share the gospel, when we tell others about Jesus Christ, when we tell our testimony and these things, there should be a lot less eyes and a lot more God. Is that not right? Sometimes when we tell our testimonies or we share things about, about our faith, we say, I, 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 me, me, I, me, me, I love me, 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 right? There's nothing wrong with saying I, me, I'm not saying that, but it should be a lot more what Moses is doing here. Look what God has done. Look what God has done. Look what God has done. Look what the Lord has done. Right? And so, over and over again, Moses tells this story of the Lord's powerful salvation. And look at Jethro's response in verse 10. 10-11. He says this, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand. So after hearing all this, this is his response, Jethro. Blessed be the Lord God who's delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now listen to what he says. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. I know this from what I've heard and what you're telling me. There is no one who can compare to Yahweh, to this God. He's coming to the knowledge of what Exodus 15, 11 says. When they're singing the song of Moses, listen to what it says, Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You know what the answer to that question is? No one. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? No one. And this is what Jethro's confession is. I come to I've come to this knowledge of what I've heard and what I've seen. There is no one like you, O God. There is no one like the Lord. Psalm 135.5 will say the same thing. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Listen, church, this morning is that there are many idols and there are many gods, little g gods that are being presented to you on silver platters today in this world. And let me just tell you this. There is no one like the Lord our God. No one will bring you salvation. No one will satisfy you like the Lord our God. He is above all gods. And this is Jethro's confession here. And so we're seeing, we're seeing a Midianite. This is not a person part of Israel. This is a priest, a Midianite, confessing that the Lord is the only one. The Lord is one, right? And his confession includes a blessing. Blessed be the Lord God, right? And then he offers offerings to him. And he, he brings sacrifices to him. And he eats before God. This is, this is what a Gentile priest is doing after hearing what the Lord has done. 
So God is saving not just Israel, but He's saving even nations outside of Israel. Even priests from other nations. You know where else you hear something like this? You hear something like this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, where Stephen is going out and he's sharing the gospel and, and it says this, that many people came to faith, even some of the priests, even some of the priests, the high in leadership, are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Here is that God's righteous arm, the good works and the salvation that he's provided. Look, it is good news and even some in the highest of leadership levels say, I want to get in on that. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the God above all gods. So God is even saving a Midianite priest. And this is just a reminder that no one is out of reach from God's saving right arm. You ever thought about that this morning? Man, I know some people, they are savages, depraved, terrible, hostile, evil human beings. God could never save somebody like that. Maybe I wouldn't even want him to. Let me just say this. You were once one of those savage, rebellious, evil human beings apart from Christ. And he saved you. And he saved you. And that even these people who we deem, who we deem so far out of God's reach, they are not out of far God's reach. As Jeremiah 32 tells us, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for the Lord, church? Thank you, children. Thank you, children. Out of the mouth of babes, adults, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. There is no one so far outside of His reach that He cannot even save. And we're seeing that even here in a Gentile Midianite priest in Zechariah. In Zechariah. And so, but why do we, why do we have Jethro's story here? What's the point? Well, I think there's something interesting about Jethro popping up here in, in Exodus 18. I put on your uh, handout, one of my favorite authors, John Selimer, who's an Old Testament, Old Testament theologian. He died many, a few years ago. But he makes, he notices that there are, some, there are some pretty interesting parallels with another figure in the Old Testament that's happened. And that's Melchizedek. And he says that these parallels between these two figures show that Jethro is kind of another Melchizedek, where he's the paradigm of a righteous Gentile. Let's just go, let's flip to Genesis 14 real quick. God has given us all these pages in Scripture so that we can flip to them. Y'all know that? Genesis 14. Genesis 14. And this is chapter 14, 17 through, through 24. Let me just read this for you. After his return, that's Abram's return, from the defeat of Shurtleomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered you, your enemies, into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. 
I will, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Now, just listen to these parallels between these two characters, Jethro and Melchizedek. Is that first, they're both priests. They're both priests. Priests of Salem, priests of Midian. Second, both of their stories, Genesis 14, Genesis 18, they both happen after a big battle. So Genesis 17 was the battle of the Malachites. And here is that there's a big battle with Amphrael. Another thing is that Abraham and Moses both name one of their children Eliezer. So in Genesis 15, Abram names one of his children Eliezer. Moses names one of his children Eliezer. Both Melchizedek and Jethro praise God for his deliverance of his people. The appearance of the word sojourner occurs in both stories. Melchizedek met Abram, Genesis 14, before God made a covenant, Genesis 15. Jethro meets with Moses in, Genesis, in Exodus 18 before God makes a covenant in Exodus 19. Now, you might say this, hmm, that sure is a coincidence. But I think we would all agree. Too much evidence to say that there's a coincidence, right? That God has uniquely shaped and structured his scripture where it all coheres with one another. And so I don't think that this is by mere happenstance or coincidental. This is to show that Jethro is like Melchizedek, where Melchizedek was not, he was a, he's a Gentile, he, will, he, he, was not, he was not from an Israelite faith, but he believed in God and he blessed God, just like Jethro. He's not an Israelite, but he recognizes who God is and he blesses him as well. And so you can turn back to Exodus 18, we'll still be there, but it's a reminder of this. That the response of Jethro, who's a Midianite priest, somebody outside of Israel, is set in contrast to how the Egyptians responded to God in rebellion. It's set in contrast to how the Amalekites responded to Israel and to God in opposition and rebellion and tried to overtake them. And you know what's even more interesting? The response of Jethro is even set into contrast with Israel, God's people, who respond in grumbling and complaining, even though they had seen all the works of God. Jethro wasn't there. All he did was heard. He heard the words of God. And then he says, I know that there is no God. There is no one else but the Lord our God. He is the God of all gods. And so this morning, if you're an unbeliever here, I just want to ask you, this might sound corny and this might sound cheesy, but be like Jethro. Be like Jethro. Believe and rejoice in that God has provided a great salvation for us in Christ Jesus. Believe that. That there is no God like the God of the Bible. Don't be like the Egyptians and the Amalekites. Because if you turn out to be like them, if you rebel and resist and oppose God, let me just tell you this, the story is here, you won't win. You won't win. Be like Jethro. Rejoice. Praise God. Confess Him. And He will grant you and give you the salvation that He gives to His people. So we move on here. We find out about Jethro's confession. But after Jethro gives his confession, he also gives advice to Moses. 
you'll look in here in verses 13 through 27, this is point number two on your outline, is Jethro provides advice to Moses. He provides advice to Moses. So right now we're in the early stages of Israel. They've just kind of gotten out, the, they're in the wilderness still, and they're still trying to figure out, we, we haven't been long out of slavery to Egypt, and so we're still trying to figure out what, you know, we're still having those birth pains in a sense. And it reminds me a little bit of, if you're a, anybody in American history kind of like, uh, you love American history in any form, you know, American Revolution, stuff like that. Two people in the booth, thank you. So, so you know what's interesting in, in my very, uh, very limited knowledge of, of the American Revolution is that after America won its independence, you know, the founders had a very unique challenge then. They, you, you thought the challenge was like, oh man, let's get, let's get independence, you know, from, you know, from the people who want to have control over us. That, to them, when you read them, that, that wasn't the difficult part. The difficult part was to figure out what they're going to now do with the independence. Like, how, how are we going to, okay, okay, we got, we're free. Like, how do we do this now? Like, how do we live free and be independent, right? They had to figure out what to do with that. And that's kind of some of the same birth pains that Israel's experiencing now. Okay, we, we have freedom. We're, we're, we're following God. We're being led by Moses. Uh, we're out of Egypt, we're not enslaved to them anymore, but we still got problems, and we don't really know what to do with them, we don't, you don't know how to, like, govern ourselves and things like that, and so that's where this enters in, in 1813 through 27, is that we find out in essence that, that Moses' father-in-law provides Moses and Israel some wisdom that I would say is from God. It's from God on how they're to govern themselves and be structured in order. And that this order and structure is good and that God cares about the order and structure of his people. Right? It matters how issues are presided over and that they're presided over well and that they're presided over by the right kind of people. Right? Because ultimately at the end of this, I hope what we see is this. We're going to read all these details about how they're going to structure themselves in hierarchy in a sense. But in essence, what I think this says is this. God cares that righteousness and justice are distributed among his people. And that they live in righteousness and justice. Let's look at this here. So Jethro comes to find out, starting in verse 13, that Moses is sitting to judge over the people from morning till evening. That people are coming before him. He's wearing many hats right now, right? Keeping a lot of plates spinning. Like he's judging between disputes. He's being a medi mediator in some sense. He's being a shepherd to people. He, he's being a prophet in some sense. And so he's, he's wearing all these hats every single day, morning till evening for this people, this, this band of misfits called Israel. And, you know, it, Jethro just warns him and says, this is not good. That's what he says. This is not good. It's not good for you, and it's not good for the people that you lead. Look at verse 17. It says, you know, you're doing all these things. You're communicating the laws of God, the statutes of God. You're in helping people to inquire of God. You're deciding between one person and one another. He says in verse 17, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. This is, this is... Jethro's warning to you. If you keep on this trajectory, you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear the people out. 
And so he gives him advice about how to distribute responsibility and delegate things to one another. And what we're learning here, one of the things that we're learning here is this. We are learning that Moses is a human, and he's frail, and he's weak, and he's a sinner. We saw that in last week in Exodus 17, where when Moses held his arms up, what happened? Israel what? They prevailed. They were winning. And what, what happened when his arms went down? So, you know what? If he was supernatural and superpower and he was God, I'm, I'm thinking he could have kept his hands up, right? Wouldn't have been a problem. But he's tired. He's weak. And here, same thing. We're seeing his frailty, his finiteness, his humanity. He's not capable of saving Israel. He's not capable of governing Israel by himself, judging it. And so, his father-in-law comes to town and he, he, he gets wisdom and advice from his father-in-law. And let me tell you this, I... I don't know about you, I don't know what your relationship with your, your parents or your in-laws are in, but I can foresee that when an in-law comes to town and starts giving you advice on things, I mean, I don't know about you, you're like, okay, dad, okay, you know, Mr. whatever, you know, puff your chest out, hey, I, this is my domain, I can rule this house, like, you don't come into my house, and I know I married your daughter, I married your son, but you don't, you got to tell me how to clean my toilet, right? I'm not saying in-laws do that. That's a, that's a caricature. That's a bad one. But you get a sense where you can puff out, puff out your chest and dismiss what they're saying, dismiss the wisdom that they may be giving you. And so that would have been wrong for Moses. He would have been a fool to do so. He would have been a fool to dismiss the wisdom that Jethro was offering. I would just ask us a question this morning. How do you respond? How do, how do you do when somebody, a believer, somebody following Jesus Christ, gives you advice and counsel and wisdom on a matter? Do you puff out your chest? Do you, you know, roll your eyes, dismiss them like, what are you doing? You don't understand. You don't know me. You don't know who, what I'm going through. You don't, you don't get this. You don't get this. And to that, I would say, we would also be a fool to not receive correction and reproof that the Word gives us. When a person is speaking wisdom from God's Word that is meant to correct, reprove, to train us, it is a very foolish thing for us to turn the blind eye to it and close our eyes and put our fingers in our ears and try not to listen. That is the essence of a fool. Proverbs 12.1 says this, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. It's the essence of stupidity. So how do you do when other people in the faith, in Christ Jesus, give you wisdom from God's word, counsel and advice from God's word? Do you dismiss it and say, who cares what they say? They don't know my life. And I would just say this. That could be the essence of stupidity and foolishness what God's Word says, because God's Word is sufficient and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Do not dismiss godly wisdom. Going on from that is that it's not just godly wisdom that Jethro gives here, but he's also giving some input on how Israel should order and structure themselves. 
That's why he goes in and says, you know, you set up chiefs over a thousand, over hundreds, over fifties, and the little, little things that come up, they go through them, and if there's big issues, then they'll come up to you, right? And you deal with them that way. And so God, through Jethro, is giving some order and structure where there's a shared responsibility among the people of Israel. Because as I said at the beginning, God is a God of order. He's not one of confusion, as we read elsewhere in the Bible, right? And that, this is why I think God is so detailed in creation. This is why God is so detailed in the tabernacle instructions. This is why God is so detailed in the temple instructions. Because God cares about order. He cares about structure in these things, right? And this is why God is so careful and um, prescriptive and detailed in how his church is to be structured, right? It cares. He cares about these things. Because structure is good for us. It's good for God's people. Here's why, here's why it's good in Israel's case. And Jethro gives these things. He says, it's good that there's order and structure and shared responsibility because you won't get worn out. The people won't get worn out. And this is the third one that I think is implied. But it's this. It's never good that all power and authority and responsibility lies in one person's hands. Is that not true? Right? It's never good. And so here we're learning one thing is that shared responsibility is a good thing for Israel as they follow God. And I would say this. It's a good thing for the church. And I think that's why Paul is so, so detailed in his descriptions in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy about pastors and elders and deacons and all these things. Is that it's important for these for us to be structured in a certain way. And maybe you're in here and thinking that the bulk of ministry should lie in the hands of the pastors, the elders, the staff. It's their responsibility. Isn't that what we pay you to do, Wes? To do all the ministry? Right? And I would say this. It's not what the Bible says. Right? There doesn't appear to be the consensus of Scripture. That it's not good for one person or even a small group of people to be having the majority of responsibility, ministry, service, that God has ordered and structured his people and even his church, that they all share and serve in this responsibility. This is why it says in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, is that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers for this purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who's doing the work of ministry? The saints. Who are the saints? Not the New Orleans saints. The saints, the church, the people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Our body of believers, even here in Crosspoint. It's not one person's responsibility. It's not one small group's responsibility. It's not just on the elders. It's not just on the deacons. It's not just on the management team. It's not just on this team, that team. It's all of our responsibility to do the work of ministry. It's all of ours. Because it's good for us. It's good for us. It's good for the body. It's good for the whole. And this is how God has structured his church and his people from the very beginning. And not only that, in Exodus 18, it's not only important that they structure themselves in a certain way, but it's also important the type of people that are put in place right, in these structures. Jethro is concerned about that. And he says this, when you go to find these chiefs over hundreds and thousands and fifties, he says this, you need to look for a certain type of men. 
able men from all people who what? They fear what? Who do they fear? God. God. They fear God. They are trustworthy and they hate a bribe. Meaning they can't be easy, easily persuaded when money is thrown in their way. Right? These are the type of people, and let me just say this, it mattered in Israel, it matters in the church, in the early church, and it matters today. Character matters among leaders. Character matters. Even in Israel. Character matters. It matters about the type of people that are in positions of leadership. Charisma and intelligence, good looks and creativity, all those things that I have, Amen? Okay. Thank you, Myra. Thank you. All those things can only get one so far, right? All the things that seem flashy and like, wow, right? Charisma, intelligence. It can only get people so far, right? But godliness is what matters in the end. Godliness. That's all that matters. And we must guard ourselves from being convinced that worldly things matter more than godliness. This is what Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy. For while bodily training is of value, don't get me wrong, it's of value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. What matters in the end about leaders is not charisma, is not intelligence, is not flashiness, is not creativity. It's about godliness because that is going to have effects for all of eternity. That's what matters. And so that's why Paul puts emphasis, and I think this is why Jethro puts emphasis here, on the types of leaders that we should have. When you read in 1 Timothy 3 and when you read in Acts 6 about deacons and elders, you know what the majority of the characteristics are? They're about character qualities. They're not about abilities and skills. There's one ability and skill, able to teach. The rest of it is about being godly. This is, this is what Jethro is concerned about. It's what Jethro is concerned about, is that you order and structure yourselves in such a way that is good for everybody, and even the type of people you put in those places will be of great importance, and it's still of Vast importance today. Vast importance today, even in our own local church. So, what's the point of 18, 13 through 27? On top of emphasizing wisdom and structure, is that ultimately at the end of this, is that God cares about justice being distributed through his people and within his people. It's what really matters that righteousness would reign. And the best commentary. I'm going to go ahead and give, it, give you this. You should read this commentary. It's great. The best commentary on Exodus 18, 13 through 27 is Deuteronomy 1. It's really good commentary. Go out and buy it today, Amazon. Or you can turn to it right now in your Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1 is the best commentary on Exodus 18, 13 through 27. Here, Moses will refer back to Exodus 18. This is this is when they're about to go, you know, this is the new generation of people. Moses is kind of reteaching all these things. And so he's talking about how they're to order and structure themselves. And he gives the reason why Jethro gave that advice back in Exodus 18. And he says this. Listen to this. 
Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 9. At that time, I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. Again, Exodus 18. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. There's too many of you people. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight of burden and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will point them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you do have, have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of ten, and officers throughout your tribes. You can see how this sounds a lot like Exodus 18, 13 through 27. Then he goes on and says this, And I charged your judges at that time, Hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is whose? God's. God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded that you, at that time, all the things that you should do is that what we're learning about Exodus 18 from Deuteronomy chapter 1 is that God cares about justice. He cares about righteousness being distributed. It's important that true justice is not partial in its distribution. It's important that when justice is dispensed, true justice is dispensed, that they understand that is God's justice being dispensed. Right? Second Chronicles 19, I won't, I won't ask you to flip there, but Second Chronicles 19 brings this back up. Again, in verses 5 through 7, he says, this is Jehoshaphat. He appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. For the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality taking bribes. The importance of Israel setting up people over tens and thousands and fifties and all things is so that justice could be distributed, true and right justice. Because when true and right justice is distributed, they can say that it's from God. And there is no injustice in God. So when the people of Israel are, are setting themselves up and ordering themselves in a structure, in a way, and true justice is being dispensed, it rightly acknowledges who God is, and that is a just and righteous God. So this section of them structuring themselves in Exodus 18, it's setting them up for the laws that they are about to give, get in Exodus 19. How are you going to keep all these laws? Who's going to adjudicate between all these things? This structure is. And so why is God so concerned with the order and structure of his people? It's so that issues can be dealt with and that justice and righteousness would be a hallmark of God's people. And so I just want to I just want to just go through just a few things if you'll just stay with me real quick. Because I know that justice and righteousness and all these things are big hot cultural topics right now about what is justice and what is righteousness and what is all these things. Let me just tell you these things. God cares about justice because he is a just God. 
Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God cares about justice because he is just. God has defined justice, the standard of right and wrong, in his word. Psalm 99, 4. The king in his might loves justice. You, O God, have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. The world does not get to pick and choose what just and righteousness are, what justice and righteousness are. God has defined that for us. The world does not understand such justice because only those who seek the Lord understand this type of justice. Proverbs 28, 5. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Why doesn't the world understand justice? Because it cannot. Because it does not know true biblical justice that comes from a just God. God's people should care about true biblical justice and righteousness. Micah, Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And listen, church, God's people, we should care about God's justice in this world, God's righteousness until the day that Christ returns when he will bring true justice and final justice and root out all injustice. Revelation 19, 11, Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Look, friends and family, I don't know what Fox News and CNN, MSNBC define justice as, call justice, call righteousness as, but I'm telling you this, this is what God calls righteousness and justice. And he is the definition of it. And we don't get to redefine who he is and what he is and what he does. He is justice. He is righteousness. And he has defined what that is. And we don't get to manipulate that. We only get to live by it. And so we are to be a people who love justice and do justice. And he has ordered us in such a way to bring that about. But this morning... There are high requirements on you. The God of wisdom, the God of justice, the God of righteousness, he requires, he requires perfect wisdom, perfect justice, perfect righteousness from each one of you. That is his requirement of you. He requires perfect wisdom, perfect justice, perfect righteousness from each one of you. Now, I think we would all say, have we all lived perfectly wisely in this world? Have you made every decision in perfect justice? Have you been perfectly righteous in everything you've done? I would say this, Wes McKay has failed in every single of those categories and much more. What are we going to do, people? We have not met the requirements of perfect wisdom, perfect justice, and perfect righteousness. What are we going to do? We've failed. We've, we've sinned. What is going what's gonna to happen to us? Praise God that the God of perfect wisdom, perfect justice and righteousness meets us with perfect mercy in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ comes and it is our wisdom and He is our justice and He is our righteousness. As 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God 
righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is all this for us. So where we have failed in every single one of those categories, you can have it all in Christ Jesus because he is the wisdom of God, the justice of God, and the righteousness of God for all who repent and place their faith in him. And that, as Jeremiah tells us, at the end we can say this, that his name will be called the Lord is our righteousness. This morning, if you are outside of Christ, you are not perfectly wise, you are not perfectly just, and you are not perfectly righteous, and that's a problem. And that God will, who is perfectly wise, perfectly just, and perfectly righteous, will judge you. But this morning, you've come in here and you're a sinner and you have not met any of those standards and any of those requirements, but you don't have to leave out of here empty. That you can have Christ who has met all those standards for you. He's met all the requirements. He's met all, checked all the boxes. And in Christ, you can have justice, righteousness, and wisdom in him. This morning, don't leave here without that. Repent, turn away from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus this morning. Let's pray. God, we love you. The God of all wisdom, justice, righteousness. We thank you that we can come to you through Christ, by the power of your Spirit. And ask for your mercy. Lord, I pray this morning we would see from your word, Exodus 18, you would apply these truths to our hearts. We would receive wisdom from you. And not be blind to it, not be cold to it, not turn a deaf ear to it. That God, we would see that you are a God of order and structure and have structured and ordered your people in such a way as to be dispensers of righteousness and justice and wisdom in this world. May we do that and may it bring glory to your name. Oh God. I love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name I pray this morning.